0: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk once again with Sparkline Capital founder Kai Wu on the importance of intangibles and how he goes about building investment strategies using machine learning when ranking companies by intangible assets. Kai walks us through how important intangibles have become in the overall valuation of many companies, and then we walk through his four pillars on how he measures intangibles and also how he applies the value investing methodology to find those companies with the best value given their intangible qualities. We end the discussion talking about Sparkline's ETF, how it's positioned in the marketplace, and what Kai has learned in running his own exchange-traded fund. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Sparkline Capital's Kai Wu. Hey, Kai, thank you for joining us today. Of course, thanks for having me back. Yeah, second time around on uh, excess returns. The first time, you know, I I made a prediction. I don't like making predictions. I'm sort of anti-prediction, anti-forecast. But I did say that I thought you'd be going on a lot more podcasts um, not because of us, because of the the knowledge and the and the wisdom and the writing and the research that you're doing. And um, so far, I think that's been uh, that's been true. So it's great for you, and it's great for the Sparkline brand to see you on. You know, so many podcasts, a lot bigger than ours.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Thank, thanks so much.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, with uh, what are you, you've done, the compound twice now. You've done Med Faber. Um, you've done Corey Hostein. So uh, I was thinking when we asked you back, you might just refer us to your publicist or something. Um,
1: I was. Oh yeah, no, I don't have. I don't have one of those, unfortunately. Yeah, not not yet. No.
0: <laughs> I do want to point this out right up front that I highly encourage uh, people to go to Kai's website, Sparkline Capital. And read his research, probably even before you listen to this entire conversation, because I think that if you if you start digging in there, you're going to see some excellent stuff, and I think it will help our listeners get more out of um, what we're going to talk about today. And that's just sparklinecapital.com, and there's like 15 different research pieces up on there. But we're going to talk about intangibles today, and um, and you can see those papers on Kai's website. So Kai, start. Let's just start with intangibles and. I mean I want to give you the floor but maybe to start let's talk about the importance of intangible assets uh in economy and then how uh, traditional accounting metrics sort of miss a lot with with intangibles.
1: Yeah, of course. So I I know your audience is very familiar with uh value investing and quantitative value investing. The idea of buying low selling high against some measure of fundamental value. So I'm also a value investor. I started off my career working for Jeremy Grantham and GMO. So my kind of time has been spent trying to answer one question, which is how has the definition of value changed over the past century? you go back to the 1930s when value was first pioneered by Ben Graham and the economy was industrial. The biggest companies were railroads and steel mills. And you fast forward to today, and now we have Apple, we have Google, Microsoft, totally different world, totally different drivers of value today. Um, I like this quote by Warren Buffett, um, it's on my website as well. Uh, the four largest companies today by market value do not need any net tangible assets. They are not like AT&T, GM or Exxon Mobile requiring lots of capital to produce earnings. We have become an asset light economy. So what is Buffett saying? He's saying that you know the moats that companies in 2022 um, use in order to gain a competitive advantage and to drive earnings are different from those hundred years ago. Um, it's not physical capital, it's instead intangible capital. So at Sparkline, we have four pillars of intangibles we use um, to kind of categorize this amorphous world um, of various drivers of value. And these four pillars are brand, human capital, network effects, and intellectual property. What we found in our research is that intangible assets, if you look as a percentage of say the corporate balance sheet in US, or as the percentage of the stock market market cap, has risen from basically zero in nineteen eighty to effectively fifty percent to eighty percent today. So a huge rise in in the balance sheet angle. You look top down from national accounts. What you see is that more GDP was invested in intangible as opposed to tangible capital in 1990. And that gap has widened ever since. So um, intangible investment has become a bigger and bigger share of investment today. So it's pretty clear that the economy has transitioned and is becoming increasingly intangible over time. What's the problem? You alluded to it already in your question, which is the accounting Right, which is accounting is the foundation upon which all valuation work is being built on. And it's not kept pace with um, all the innovation and transformation we've seen in society. Um, there's a book I like a lot. Um, I've talked about it's um, called the, uh, the End of Accounting by an NYU professor, Gruff Lev and Fang And one of the really cool exhibits in their um, uh, book is where they show the, a cross-sectional regression of book value and earnings as ability to explain market cap. And you can see the R-squared was about 90% in 1950 and it declines down to less than 50% today, right? So what that is saying is that, you know, as the economy is transitioning to be more and more intangible, traditional accounting metrics such as book value and earnings are declining in their explanatory power. So what is the problem with accounting? I think there are kind of two categories of issues um, that, that are experienced. The first is inconsistent capitalization rules. And so, what I mean by that is that the way that accounting frameworks deal with intangible as opposed to tangible investments are different. Um, if I put a you know a bunch of a hundred million dollars, let's say, in building a manufacturing plant or a factory, that gets capitalized; it goes on the balance sheet of the company and then gets depreciated over time. Whereas a hundred million dollars spent on, say, a COVID vaccine, you know, R and D um, development ends up becoming a expense, so it gets taken out of the income that year, and there's no balance sheet item. Which is, of course, ridiculous because you have firms whose only job is to do R&D or to build brand equity, and those things don't appear in their balance sheets, right? Coca-Cola spent $100 billion um, on advertising over the course of its its lifetime, and zero is on its balance sheet as a brand equity item. Um, And so the second category of of, of problems is just pure omissions, right? So we saw that with brand and IP, it's more an issue about how the accounting investment is being treated different than, than physical investment. But on the other two, so human capital network effects, there's basically no, no mention. The only thing we see is that for the human capital front, there is like I mentioned, of the number of headcount a company has, which of course is not very useful because it doesn't make any distinction as to the quality of these employees or what they even do. And then on the, on the network effects side, I mean, you have all these companies for whom the, the, the primary store of value, if you like Lyft, right? All your value is in your driver network, that's not an on balance sheet asset. Um, So, you know, how are we gonna think about that? I'm just looking at accounting statements.
2: I wanted to dig a little bit further into how you talked about your four pillars of intellectual property. And, you know, obviously we talked about how we can't measure this stuff with accounting statements. So I want to dig a little bit further into how you do measure it. And so I I want to maybe go through, and I know you use machine learning here, and I want to go through each one of them, and maybe you could talk about what the important metrics are and sort of how you measure it. And and the first is intellectual property.
1: Sure, So, so first of all, each of these pillars, um, they're kind of these ide these, these overall conceptions of what is value. So for example, human capital, there's a few different components here. There is like, what is the underlying pool of talent your company is drawing on? And then there's like a the culture aspect, which is like, you know, you can have the five best players, but they don't pass with the ball. It's not really an effective team. So, chemistry. So there's always gonna be multiple sub components of each of these. Um, I think for the sake of, you know, just trying to get through this podcast, we'll give like one example for each, is that fair? That sounds um, good. Okay. so. Yeah, so intellectual property, I think the most straightforward example is patents, right? And I think we get into this later um, in a talk, but just as a sneak preview, um, what we're doing here is we're trying to say, look, it's not how mu- how many patents you have. It's about like owning innovative patents, because obviously not all um, technologies are equally innovative. What we want to do is we want to own companies who are investing heavily in technologies that are um, deemed to be innovative, which again, is different each, each year, right? So like, you know, cloud computing was pretty big 10 years ago, a hundred years ago, you know, maybe it was electricity or like the, the railroad that were like the kind of most innovative technologies. Um, so it's really important to be able to kind of uh, rotate the technologies through time. And we use natural language processing on the abstracts and descriptions and titles, the text components of these patents, to then classify them into various buckets to then say, which of these buckets are trending and then owning the companies with exposure to those things. And, you know, what, what we do find is that these companies that have more innovative property than, than the, the next tend to outperform the market um, by a pretty significant annualized percentage.
2: Move on to brand equity. What do you, how do you think the best way to value that is? It seems like that would be a very difficult thing to value. Like what is a company's brand worth?
1: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, it's not as simple as saying, Hey, you know, I have more followers than you, right? I mean, that's, that's, you know, one proxy for get at, but obviously it's a lot more complex. And so one of the insights that we have is that, you know, today brand perception is formed um, on social media. And if you go to like Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, any of these sites, you, that's where people, um, consumers form their perception of what is the brand of company X of Lululemon or of, um, you know, WD 40. And so. Um, We we go to the actual data, in this case, we choose Twitter as our kind of um, research uh, sandbox. And we say, you know, uh, the definition of a brand is not one dimensional, in fact, it's multidimensional. There's actually some work by a a psychologist um, named Jennifer Aker, This was in the 90s, and she created this brand personality framework. The idea is that there are five dimensions of personality, similar to a Myers-Briggs, if you're familiar with that, but for companies and for brands where it's like, hey, a company or brand can be, it can be uh, sincere, rugged, it can be exciting. Um, so there are these, these five different dimensions. And so what we do is we go through all the tweets and we figure out which companies have exposure to each of these factors, creating these little like, kind of radar charts for each company. So for example, we find like Christian Mingle is known to be sincere, Tesla is known to be exciting. Um, and the way we get, get, do this, we do, we do two different things. So first we use natural language processing to look for co-mentions of um, words associated with each of these clusters. Um, So for example, like, I think like, uh, you know, America or fly fishing or coal mountains are like associated with like rugged, right? Um, Another way we go about doing this is by looking at the overlap in the kind of follower networks of various brands. So we look at the five dimensions of personality and we find like seed accounts, canonical accounts for each one, for example, like, we find that um, you know, the outdoor magazine is a good example of a rugged um, account. And then what we do is we say for each brand, what's the overlap in their followers against the outdoor magazine. And when there's a lot of high degree of overlap, it means that they're probably, you know, the people who follow both these brands are the same. Therefore it must be, you know, more, more rugged. And then what we do is we figure out, you know, again, this is all done at point in time. So we're only looking at rolling windows. We say um, brands where they, um, where they are strong in one of the five dimensions. It doesn't matter which one, but they just need to have some well-defined personality. They tend to outperform their stocks subsequently. And then we also find that um, when they when you compare this to a peer group. So in other words, it's not so much like, hey, my brand is really known for X. It's my brand is really known for X, which distinguishes me. Like if you think about like a a 2D map, right, a market map um, away from my competitors, companies that that are kind of standing on its own, occupying its own space, those are the ones that their stocks tend to subsequently do the best. So we do find, you know, in conclusion, I guess, that, um, you know, strong brands do outperform, but, you know, there's a bit more kind of layers and complexity to the analysis than just saying, you know, who has the most followers or whatever.
2: Just as an aside, this probably varies a lot with, with the different pillars, but how far can you go back and actually get data to maybe look at these types of things?
1: Yeah, so I think on one extreme, the patent example, that goes back to 1790, Um, And then just two centuries of data, um, which, by the way, predates, you know, all the stock market data we have. So that's not a binding factor. Twitter, obviously, we can get back, you know, 10, 20 years um, whenever it came out. So much shorter. So it it will really vary by um, by data sets.
2: Moving on to human capital. uh, Can you talk a little bit about that and how you measure it?
1: Yeah. So the insight here is that, you know, we now live in a knowledge economy. And, you know, in that world, uh, you know, talent is, you know, more kind of power law. It's more non-linear, right? You have these 10X engineers who are 10 times better than their, you know, peers at, uh, you know, and so it's all about figuring out which companies have the best talent that in, in the modern day should be the source of competitive advantage, not like, you know, having, um, you know, the nicest office or whatever. And so if a goal is to figure out which companies are able to attract and retain the top talent. You need to kind of go in and look at the individual employees that, you know, form that kind of comprise um, each of these organizations. So we go to LinkedIn and we kind of like take down and scrape all the information. And with that, we're able to see like a bunch of really interesting things. So for example, if you were to look at my profile on LinkedIn, you'd see my current job, my last job, the job before that, where I went to college, you know, if I went to grad school, which I didn't, um, that would show up as well, right? And so what that allows you to do is, is, to, is form like a, a network, right? Like a human capital flows um, through organizations. And so we look at two things. So first we look at is um, the company level data, which is um which uh you know we want to basically um we want to okay so if you just step back one of the challenges with uh, human capital is that there's no like nfl combine for this like you can't just be like all right well like let's just make you throw the football and like run you know 50 meters or whatever and see how good you are right because in, in reality you can't you can't know that so it's so all these soft skills and things so the best way to proxy for that is through like um the kind of screening mechanisms of hey, where did you work before? Hey, if you got a job at Goldman, that was probably pretty good. You know, if you went to like an Ivy League school, that was probably pretty good. If you got into a PhD program at Carnegie Mellon, that's probably pretty good, right? So we're kind of using those as, um, as ways of filtering, um, you know, people. And so what we do here is on the employment side, is we say, hey, look, if you're a company and you're able to hire talent from like your most formidable competitors, whoever that might be, um, and they are in turn able to hire their employees from their formidable competitors, and you talk of the food chain, that's probably a good sign. And we're looking at net labor flow. So again, it's all about net hiring as opposed to if if you're losing employees, which of course is always going to be turnover. That's always a bad thing. So you want to be net hiring from, um, these, from your competitors. And so what we do in this case is we use, because it's a, it's a close for, it's a kind of circular problem where it's like my company is successful because I acquire I take employees from say Google, but Google is successful because they take from me. So what we do is we use PageRank, which is like a, the algorithm that Google uses for um, ranking websites where it's all about the backlinks and it's a closed form solution where they say, you know, websites where they receive lots of backlinks from other websites are better. And it's about the quality of the link, right? If it's from Wall Street Journal, it's a pretty higher ranking thing than like a random investment blog. So the same thing applies here where it's like, we look at each company and figure out, you know, where are they hiring talent from and how many, you know, how many, how many firms are they hiring from and are these high quality firms? So that kind of is how we solve that problem. And then of course, on the, um, Education side, yeah, what we do is we actually find that, you know, firms that hire more, you know, PhDs and even better PhDs from like your top programs as a percentage of like market cap, right? So, you know, we have a higher intensity of of PhDs, let's say, um, tend to actually outperform, adjusted for factors. So that's like an interesting finder. Actually something I did not publish um, that's kind of interesting too, is the converse, which is that companies that hire lots of MBAs actually underperform. So, you know, for whatever reason, um, but yeah, I didn't want to be mean, so I didn't publish that but I'm telling you now. So anyways, these are the various types of signals that we, we create to, you know, assess which firms are able to t- attract and retain the best talent. And, you know, intuitively the result is that, you know, when you are able to get the best get people working for you and keep them happy, that your stock does tend to do better all else.
0: Come on, that's not the uh, short, that, that's not the uh, short MBA sleeve. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, and just to cover the last one, uh, network effects. How do you think about network effects?
1: Yeah, so th- this paper I wrote kind of came- stemmed from this, in- this observation that the economy was becoming increasingly platformatized. And what I mean by that is like the number of platform companies has gone from like, you know, a handful to be becoming like over half or, or more 60%, let's say, of the market capital of the S&P right? And you have, it's coming from all sides. It's your massive platforms like your Facebook and your Google and your Apples, but it's also all these like, you know, smaller companies IPOing like your, you know, Airbnb, Snowflakes, et cetera. And so what we're seeing is like a greater and greater share, especially technology stocks, right, which are naturally information-based and therefore lend themselves to network effects more than, you know, physical companies, um, that these companies are becoming, you know, plat- the platform business model is becoming like pretty predominant. Um, due to the advantages of scale like once you have scale it's basically um, you're locking in the the market etc so the big challenge anyway is 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 how do we identify companies that are platforms right everyone has their own subjective definition they're all completely different so we wanted to come up with like a you know more objective thing we could run that was point in time where it's like hey if I sat there in 2005 I would be able to know that say Facebook was um, trying to develop platform network effects um, without having the benefit of hindsight so what we did was we actually got um, two articles um, on, you know, what are platform companies? So there's two types of platforms. There's transaction platforms, which are more like your marketplaces and then innovation platforms, which is like the best example would be like iOS, where your kind of developers are building on your um, base layer. So we got one article for each one was Harvard professor. One was an MIT professor. Both articles are written in the mid two thousands. So pretty early before like we knew Facebook would become Facebook. And then the idea was to look at all the 10K business descriptions for all the companies in our universe and say, what is like the similarity using natural language processing machine learning models between these, all these 10Ks and these articles, right? And for example, like Uber talks about being like, oh, we have like a fleet of drivers, we have, a, we have network effects, we have like a platform. So that's obviously close to one, it's a higher score. Um, whereas a more traditional business, we get something closer to zero. And what this allows us to do is we ought to, it allows us to run it like on a rolling basis through time because every year a new techie comes out. So for example, you could look at like Amazon, which it comes out in the 90s as basically being like a not platform, but then over time, as they create like AWS and then Kindle publishing, et cetera, they become more and more of a platform. So it has like this dynamic effect as well. And what we find is that again, taking into account point in time, you know, removing any hindsight bias that companies with network effects have been historically undervalued by the market. In other words they've grown by like um a, a kind of tremendous they've outgrown the market by a lot yet they have never traded at the premium that they probably should have to kind of neutralize that that gain. um so that's kind of the historical effect now moving forward it's not as clear that like that will continue to persist i think it probably will especially for the bigger companies but like obviously a lot of these hot ipos like the snowflakes and and DoorDash's of the world um they are trading at pretty you know elevated multiples where they are pricing and you know, a lot of growth, which might be what what was realized historically, but at least doesn't give you the same margin of safety um, that we had, you know, if we were to have, you know, started 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you made a bet on platforms.
2: Impossible question to answer, but how close do you think we can actually get to the value of this stuff? So, you know, if we start with standard accounting statements, we basically have no value. Then we get to the capitalizing R&D and SG&A and we've got some value. Then we get to your approach and we're doing a much better job. I mean, do do you think we can get fairly close to what the actual value of these things are?
1: Look, like I, th- I think the answer is that it's very challenging. I mean, finance is challenging in general, but, you know, th- with these intangibles, the, the value is very imprecise, like it, there's a lot of subjectivity to all, to all this work. So I, I, don't, I don't think that even with current methods, we're able to kind of get that close. Now, that being said, right, it's like the whole Albert Einstein quote, right? Which like, you know, like everything that like, you know, can be counted doesn't necessarily count and things that just because they can't be counted precisely, they, they might count. Right. So like the, the approach is, of course, like, you know, of course, if you can, that you should try, like you can't not try Like you can't not give Google any credit for its human capital or its network effects. Right. You kind of, you have to do that. And I guess the one thing that I think, you know, if I were to say is a positive in this case, is that while like what we're doing and what the cap- guys who capitalize R&D and d and sg are doing is not perfect, it is a step in the right direction. And it's well ahead of what the other, what the rest of the market's doing, right? Like one thing I pointed out like in, in, in the beginning was that we've seen just like this massive transformation of the economy over the past few decades, yet like most of the industry, which is still stuck on kind of standard price to book and accounting and data have not evolved um, in response. And what that means is that like the only, the only point in investing is to be ahead of, your, ahead of the market, right? So like, yeah, we might be like a seven out of 10, but if the market's a three out of 10, um, that still gives us a bit of a, 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 a margin of safety there.
2: One of the things a lot of people won't think about when they think about things like intellectual property and brand equity is the the idea of value. But you've done an interesting thing in terms of taking these things and coupling them together with value. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you turn these into valuation ratios.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point. So one thing we do not do is we don't just go out there and buy the companies with the highest intangible value, right? We're not just going to be like, hey, this company here has the most innovative patents. This company has the most um, you know, AI PhDs, this company has the most Twitter followers, right? Like that is not what we're doing because that's just a proxy for size for market cap. So we're value investors. So we, what we care about is, you know, finding, um, companies where the ratio of market cap to say PhDs to take that example is attractive. So like one analogy would be, you know, classical value investors look at like price to book, dividend yield, earnings yield, where it's like for each dollar put in, how many dividends do I get out? Um, so what we're doing here is we're saying, let's do the same thing we're, for each um, billion dollars invested in this company, how many patents do I get? How many PhDs do I get, et cetera? So it ends up becoming a like valuation ratio. Just it's the, the, the numerator, I guess, in this case is not a is not like trailing cash flows, but instead is this intangible value, which we assume will convert into um, a competitive advantage. It's kind of a modern mode, um, you know, today.
2: And when, do you think about the, when you think about the four pillars, I mean, do you, do you equally weight them in your evaluation ratio? Yeah, yeah. So what we do is we
1: have dozens of different metrics. Um, as I mentioned, like we might have, you know, 30 different types of metrics for innovation across different data sources. And what we do is we smush them all together. So we first, we, we z-score them. We cross-sectionally normalize each one. And the reason why we do that is, you know, our goal is, is, is to pick the best stocks at each point in time. We're not trying to do absolute value forecasting. We're just trying to say, you know, which are the best companies today. So we, we normalize cross-sectionally and you know, basically setting the mean to be zero, standard deviation to be one. Um, and that allows us to compare apples to apples across the various metrics. And the reason we, we, we combine them at the pillar level is to deal with correlations, right? If I were to have tell you there's a hundred different signals in my model, 99 are IP signals and one of them is a brand signal, right? It's effectively, a, if I just equal weight the signals, it's basically now a 99% um, IP model and, and the brand effectively falls out. So what we do instead is we say, let's smush all the IP signals together because they are empirically and expect to be correlated, obviously since we are trying to triangulate the same concept and then put all the brand signals together and then we equal across those four things.
2: One of the things I want to do here is, you know, there's been a lot of research on intangibles, but a lot of people haven't done what you've done, which is taken it and built a real world investment strategy with it. And so I want to go through some of the things, you know, we kind of think about when we build investment strategies and get your opinion on how you sort of think about those when you build this intangible based strategy. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is we sort of start with this idea of a universe. You know, what, what can we actually invest in? What are we choosing from? How do you think about your investable universe when you build a strategy? So the, the first thing is that,
1: you know, I, I'm really trying to build this framework to be universal. Right. I, I want I want whatever I'm building to be something that could theoretically be applied anywhere because it's it's nothing but like a you know first principles based framework where hey anything that has strong brand or human capital network first that should be a source of value today and if it's if you're getting those assets at a cheap price that's interesting right that's the only framework so I've actually tested this in small cap U S stocks and it outperforms quite well um, I've also tested it in crypto and using different data sources and we don't need to get into how I did that. Um, and it works well. And I haven't looked at international markets or emerging markets yet, but I am fairly confident that if we were to explore out of sample how these strategies might work there, it would also work well. Um, For the sake of this, though, the strategy that I built, I, I said, let's walk before we run. Let's start in kind of the asset class that everybody needs. Everybody needs US large cap equities and mid cap equities. So the universe for the sake of this discussion is Russell 1000 or the top 1000 largest US stocks, so kind of large and mid cap universe.
2: How do you think about the idea of how many stocks to hold in the portfolio? You know some quants will own a lot of stocks to try to take advantage of like the signal averaging out over time and then there's others that will be very very focused. How do you think about the number of stocks?
1: Yeah, that's that's another really good question. Um, I think, again, there's, there's a trade-off here, which is if I were to only hold, say, one stock, right, as a corner case, then, um, you know, in theory, I can find that single best stock, which scores the highest in all my metrics, your four sigma, five sigma stock. But of course, then you run massively using credit risk on um, something that could happen that's, you know, out of your model and you're done, right? Um, conversely, you could say, I'm going to hold the entire universe. Let's say I want to hold the top half, right, the top half of the universe. Imagine you did that. Well, that's 500 different stocks the problem is that you're diluting your alpha so much that you're kind of by definition only holding kind of average stocks at the left tail. So what is the correct answer? You've got to figure out like where, to, how best to balance that. If you look at the effect of like, you know, your kind of um, square root of n on, uh, on diversification, you find that like the diversification benefits start to kind of like turn over at some point where it gets kind of this, this quadratic or like a concave uh, curve. We chose a number of 150, which represents the top 15 percentile of our, of our universe. So in other words, We have a thousand names, take the bottom 850, throw them all out, slice that. Now we have 150 different names. We think that that's, you know, safely beyond the line where like, we're not even close to flirting with the risk of being too um, concentrated, but still able to adequately exploit the breadth of, um, you know, our signals across um, the, the market.
2: How about position weighting? You know, we kind of take the easy way out when we weight our positions, we just equally weight everything. How do you think about that idea? So, yeah. We don't it everything. There's a few
1: um, waiting um, things. So the first thing we do is we, we do wait in proportion to the signal. Like we don't wait one for one, but it is the case that you know all of us equal two companies. One company is slightly more attractive than the other one. We're gonna hold more of it. Um, but we do also do some market cap waiting, right? And so here there's again a trade-off, which is if you were to go full market cap waiting, right, then you have the least tracking error against the S&P 500, which for better or worse, as you know, is what clients, compare you to, right? Even if you are, you know, have no benchmark and actually return fund, they're going to look at you and say, hey, S&P went up 12% this year, what do you do? So you kind of need to at least somewhat take that into account. On the other hand, if you uh, were to go the opposite extreme and equal weight, you have the most breadth, right? You have the most alpha because you can run over and underweight the most. Um, But then first of all, you you lose some liquidity, although it's not a huge concern, um, given that we're in top 1000 stocks. But more importantly, now you're a massive tracking error against the S&P. And that tracking error is more importantly, low quality tracking error. In other words, it's tracking error that's not, not driven by your alpha, it's driven by a, a random bet on a single factor, which is small versus large. So th- now the thing is that I'm sitting there, let's imagine I evil weighted. Now I'm sitting there and like this year, large cap stocks do well, I, I'm gonna underperform the S&P solely because of that. Um, not because, you know, my factors underperformed. underperforming. So I, did, I wanted to kind of remove some of that noise. So what I did was I chose a middle ground. So similar to what I did with the, um, 150 names, where I did square root market cap weighting. This is something we used to do at GMO as well, where it's like somewhere halfway between um, being equal weighted and cap weighted um, to kind of balance through that needle between those two trade-offs.
2: I have a couple of questions I would ask you around industry concentration. And the first is, you know, just thinking about this idea on the surface, you would think, and I don't know I don't the really answer to this, but you would think that this type of approach would overweight technology stocks. Is that right? Um, overweight against what? Against like say the S&P 500's technology weighting, you would have a greater weighting based on using innovation or, you know, intangible assets in your process.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, the, the composition of that weight is very different, right? Like the names we hold and like the subsectors and, you know, what we consider to be disruptive or innovative, the kind of, uh, you know, price to earnings characteristics, the growth characteristics, quality are all very different. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's fair to say that, you know, if you were only focused on, say, the GIGS industry classifications, that the weighting of the technology and also healthcare is going to be higher than what we see with the S&P. And are
2: you, are you a believer, you know, we've, we've kind of seen in the value investing world, we've kind of seen two camps here. One camp is like, you know, when financials are really cheap, I'll go heavily in the financials. And the other camp is like the AQR type camp that says, I'm going to keep my industry concentrations pretty consistent and try to bet on the factor overall. I'm just wondering, how, how do you think about that debate?
1: So we are in the camp where we don't neutralize. And look, I think in the hedge fund world, like, where, you know, equity, long, short, um, you know, bar, all these sorts of things, or, you know, you residualize everything you can think of. Um, So that's my background. When I um, designed this strategy, I was very explicit to not do that. And, you know, the reason is twofold. So first is just like, kind of, from a practical standpoint, I'm actually not a huge fan of, like, the industry classification, like, the gigs, for example. I think it, like, is super, like, reductive. It's binary and, like, misses a lot of the nuance for example, like, you know, Amazon's a retail stock, but it has AWS, which is like kind of more important now than the retail piece, right? Like is Tesla an auto company or like a um, tech company within like even tech, you have some very like disruptive companies, some very like, you know, kind of more old school tech, right? And like, you know, they're always revising these things and it's very subjective um, and kind of binary the way that you do this. So like I've actually designed my own like industry weighting scheme that's more continuous. um, But like, again, we don't need to get into that. Uh, the, The point is just that, I think based on the limitations of, you know, the, the gig's industry weightings, I wouldn't want to be over-optimized to something that I think is flawed. Now, the second argument is even if the gigs were like an accurate representation of what companies actually did, um, I would I would still not want to um, over-optimize. And and the reason why is because, you know, what I want to do is I want to build a process where it's like actually return focus. I want to buy the companies where there's, you know, strong in, with a strong intangibles. where's the talent going where's where's the ip going where's what where's where are all the grand value accruing to regardless of sector assuming that it's trading at a reasonable price of course and um, that's why i want I to follow the the data through the, the, the data through the economy and you know as the economy changes like the sectoral, sectoral economy will change too right today we're very tech heavy you know a while back it was just banks and before that was just oil companies right and then before that was industrials so as the sectoral competition of the economy changes through time, I don't want to be like saying, hey, you know, because energy is like a 5% weighting or whatever, and even less in the S&P now, I'm going to constrain the 5%. And then in 20 years, when we have a, had a green revolution and, you know, um, EV and other green technologies, let's say, are like um, 40% of the S&P, let's imagine, um, that we're still stuck at 5 because we made that decision, you know, 20 years ago to, to constrain. So I'm trying to be more like, Organic, just kind of letting the the data tell us where we want to go and kind of following uh, investments of intangibles through the economy.
2: And how do you think about rebalancing? You know, one of the things we see with traditional value strategies is they tend to not need to be rebalanced as much as some of the other factor strategies we run. But I'm wondering, you know, this is a more unique, innovative take on value. So do you find that with your approach as well? So let me ask you, uh, a traditional price-to-book value
1: strategy, what is the rebalancing frequency for that? Like, um, how long will will it take to turn over the entire portfolio?
2: So we've, we kind of run, when we run value strategies on our website, we run monthly, quarterly and annual versions of all of them. And one of the things we've seen with the value type strategies, like let's say we're running like a Ben Graham type strategy is, you know, that will actually perform better with an annual rebalancing than it does with a monthly. Whereas in our monthly, you know, with our momentum type strategies, obviously you have the monthly performance is much better. So I was thinking, you know, you're running a very innovative way to to look at value. So I'm thinking that Ben Graham thing probably would not be the optimal way to do yours, but I'm not really sure.
1: Well, let me ask you, um so putting aside like how frequently you you trade like you trade every day every month every quarter every year but like how many how long does it take for you to turn the entire portfolio over like for example like I'm trading like roughly every 30 days or every every month or so but I only turn over like you know 5% of the portfolio each month right so it or maybe a bit more so let's say like 5-10% so let's say roughly speaking the portfolio turns over once a year even though I trade a small bit each month does that make sense yeah okay yeah yep that makes sense Um, and so like I don't know like what the, the number works out to be for you guys, but like my understanding is that for kind of traditional price to book strategies, it tends to be around a, a year as well. Is that fair or is it maybe a little slower or faster? No, I
2: think okay. that's fair. Yeah,
1: because that was what I so I actually looked at this and I looked at like the evolution of like book value through time, like how fast does it move? Like it's not like jittery around, it's pretty like smooth, right? That's like, a measure of fundamentals. Um earnings is often a bit more jittery. But that's why you do kind of like capes and chiller fees to kind of smooth them. Um, if you look at like metrics that I, such as, um, IP brand, human capital, et cetera, it does vary. So for example, one thing I found was like culture tends to be one of the, the slowest moving of the, of the, um, pillars because it's like, you know, once the cultural values are espoused and kind of like set by the founders, like it's very slow to change, um, whereas there are other things that like, more technology oriented things that like obsolescent cycles are faster. And so like there is a bit more turnover. But if you take a blended average of like the fastest and the slowest burn things, you end up with like a a kind of turnover on fundamentals of around one year. So it ends up being like, I guess, pretty similar to like a classical value strategy with regards to like, you know, the fundamentals Um, said differently, like tangible value tends to kind of evolve with the same speed as intangible value. And then of course the the trading is driven by price because like you have some stable fundamentals and you have prices that kind of like randomly, you know, gyrate around them based on like, you know, Mr. Markets um, tastes and that's what drives a lot of the trading, obviously.
2: It's interesting to think about that kind of from the perspective of like, like you pointed out, like if you look at the other value factors, like the academics love price to book because price to book has low turnover, it doesn't change that often. So it's, it's not like, you know, I, I kind of overs- oversimplified at the beginning. It's not like every value strategy in terms of the underlying fundamental has the same type of, you know, changes, you know, a PE is going to change a lot more, a lot more quickly than a price to book.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah.
2: But if you kind of were to
1: blend, say, a bunch of different value metrics, like book sales, earnings, et cetera, you kind of get to like this, this, you know, composite that's, you know, similar, I think, to what the intangible, um, the turnover, the intangible value as well.
0: Kai, when you talk to investors about the fund, um, you know, how do they look at it? Do they, do they, you clearly, you're talking about a value oriented strategy, but using intangibles, probably if you look at the portfolio, it's going to look maybe a little bit more growthy. Kind of quality tech growthy, you know that. So, if you're talking to an individual investor or a financial advisor, like how do you talk about where this belongs in an overall asset allocation for someone?
1: I personally don't love the whole value versus growth thing. Like, you know, Warren Buffett talks about how value and growth are growing at the hip. That you know you can't evaluate company's on um, valuation without looking at its growth prospects and vice versa. um So, you know, I'm on the camp that like the style box value growth approach probably doesn't make a ton of sense. The way you know, I hold a lot of, my, uh, of, the, of the strategy, obviously, and like my, my uh, thought here is like I want to own, the way I'm thinking about it is like this is just like an absolute return investment for me. I want to own companies with strong brands, strong human capital, network effects, and IP a- obtained at a reasonable price. And those are the kind of quality businesses that I think will succeed um, in the modern day based on all the back tests and, and, and analysis we've done. Now, obviously, I recognize that for a lot of um, advisors or just you know investors in general, it's helpful to kind of think about how this would fit into you know a model or, or various buckets that people typically subscribe to. So I say there's like three different ways to think about it um, for, for these folks. The, the the first is so imagine you're like a value investor, like a traditional value investor, right? We know that you know value is um, you know probably the most uh, widely known and popular of the major factors, and you have an allocation to value managers, and you're saying, all right, well the the problem that Kai's pointing out, I actually I actually agree with him. I, I think that, um, you know, I don't want my value portfolio to be so biased towards your kind of asset-heavy businesses, like industrials, banks, et cetera. Like, I think that if we can apply value outside of this kind of traditional um, realm into the parts of the economy that are growing. So, by the way, I, I ran this analysis where I said, um, what would happen if we took the universe of um, companies and divided them into two categories, companies that are kind of your intangible light, so traditional industrial businesses and stuff, and then everybody else so the intangible intensive businesses. And what I found was that traditional press the book continues to work really well, even um, despite, even, though the, even though the factor has decayed the past 10 years in the traditional areas, where all the decay comes from is because it's just doing so badly in things like software and, and healthcare, where like, you know, trying to use a press the book model doesn't really work that well on high intangible companies. So, you know, square background, round hole. And the problem of course is that like, you can't just do that because the, this part of the economy, this intangible part is growing as a share. It's now 80% of the market cap of the S&P and growing over time. So like, you can't just kind of like, you know, ignore that. So anyways, going back to my, my first point, for someone who has a value um, allocation, they can th- think of this as a way of expanding their value framework, outside of your kind of traditional stuff into the, you know, new economy. The second category of investors are gonna be more growth oriented investors. People say, I wanna buy innovative companies. I wanna buy um, sectors where like the, um, where the future prospects are tied to the growth of the American economy, to innovation, um, and, and things like that. Now, the problem with a lot of growth-focused funds is that they're like, you know, looking at looking for innovation at like any price, as opposed to a reasonable price. That they're just kind of buy things that you know are now down ninety percent because, um, you know, they were not looking at like the price they were paying to obtain that innovation. So one way you can think about what we're doing is as a way of buying growth, buying these kind of innovative companies, but doing so with an eye on valuations with a value orientation. And then the final category of people, I think where, you know, I've gotten traction is um, the factory investors, right? Folks who are like, I want to be, you know, long the market, but I want to go one step further. And I also want to, so instead of just the equity risk premium, I also want to own, you know, various style risk premium, you know, probably value, maybe size, maybe momentum. Right. And so these guys might say, all right, so what you're doing here is the same thing. You're saying we can tilt our portfolio, even just a little bit towards factors we like. Things like, you know, companies where, you know, they have undervalued brand, undervalued intellectual property, undervalued network effects, undervalued human capital. And then each of these four factors are interesting. And so, you know, tilting towards these four things, if you believe my argument that these things are indeed undervalued, gives you an exposure that's similar in concept, but quite different, at least statistically than traditional, price the book, but like has the same kind of, um, idea, which is we're, we're tilting towards things that we believe on average to be undervalued and should have a few percentage points per year of premium. Um, so th- there's kind of like, yeah, three or four different ways that like investors have chosen to to look at this strategy as a, as a way of, uh, um, complementing what they
0: currently do. Yeah, no, I love that. I think especially for like retail investors that believe in this sort of disruption, innovative type of, Style of investing, but you know they've probably gotten crushed if they've been in the arcs of the world or some of these funds that don't pay any attention to price. So I think that that themes a really strong one. But the fact that you layer in these these value factors as well to try to weight some you know fundamental, well, I guess intangible, uh, you know val- value um, approach, that I think is, is is really good. and it Probably re- will will be resonating a lot with investors, especially in this this type of environment we're in. Um, I wanted to um, ask you about sort of the future here. I mean, what do you think, as you've sort of thought about this and been running the strategy, are there ways that you think um, this can be improved on with new technology in the future? I mean, what are you looking at right now in terms of uh, enhancing the strategy? Or maybe 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 you're not, but I was just wanted to get your thoughts on sort of the future of this, where, where it's going.
1: Look, I, I, I think that the market is not paying enough attention to the rise of intangibles and how important this is, right? Intangibles are like the main drivers of value today. And, you know, I don't see much push to say, Hey, let's put all these things in the 10 Ks. The only area where this is coming from, by the way, is by the ESG guys, which, you know, totally different reason why they, why they're doing this. But like a lot of ESG folks are saying, we need more human capital disclosures for like turnover and metrics like that, which would be very helpful. But aside from those guys like there just isn't enough recognition by the market that this is what matters today not like your book value like it's kind of insane that like you know there's been so little innovation or or even like just political pressure to, to do anything here so i i think that you know if we are to fast forward you know several years and say hey look like intangible value is like now you know very efficient people really understand it and all the data is available like what would that what would drive that it would have to be like Less like technology. Like I don't think the the gating item right now is like the you know amount of compute we have or like the algorithms we have. Right? Like there's been massive innovation in natural language processing the past ten years and like a, a tr- tremendous way. You have all seen GPT three and, and Dolly. It's, it's pretty incredible what they can do. I think the gating item is more on like data co- data collection and production. Right? Like there is a, there's some decent data coming out now on like consumer behavior and consumer interaction. So anything that's kind of served online B2C, you can kind of look at like the app downloads, website traffic, Google trends, like all these data, which kind of help you form a sense for how much consumer traction you're seeing. Um, You know, I'd like to see more also on the employee side, right? So we have LinkedIn, we have, you know, various job postings, we have, um, you know, Glassdoor and other um, things like that, but like, you'll get a better sense of human capital would be nice. Um, But you know, I think these things are starting to roll out. And you know, you guys mentioned um, earlier in the call, one of the big challenges or you alluded to it, at least with my approach is that many of these data sets, so not patents, but some of these things are pretty new. They have shorter histories. And so what that means is like, um, and this is always a trade-off, right? Like price of book, the reason why it's still popular despite the fact that it hasn't worked the past 10 years is because like, it just has such a long, rich history like um, of of working for like a century. And so people are like, well, you know, it's worked for a long time. Like, let's not like, you know, overreact here. Whereas like, you know, if you were to, to, to buy into my thesis, you have the opposite problem, which is like, it makes intuitive sense that what I'm doing should work, but because the the track record or like whatever, the, the, the period at which we didn't kind of look at these data are shorter, like you're, you have to take it a bit more on faith than you can on just pure empirical data. Um, and so the good news though, is that with every year that passes, right, even the things that are already out in the market, like LinkedIn has one more year in data. And at some point, you know, you'll get to the point where people are like, yeah, this thing's been around basically forever. Like it's been around at least as long as, you know, the economy has been, you know, as long as it's relevant for the modern like stock market, right? Because at some point you have to say like, all right, well, the market in the 50s was so different than today. It's not really relevant. Um, so I think that helps as well. Um, in terms of things I'm looking at now, um, I mean, there are a lot of different things I'm looking at, I guess. So two things I can talk about are so one thing I'm looking at is like what I call like return on influence, which is this idea that like, you know, firms invest in various intangibles like R&D, like building brands, you know, through marketing. They also invest in like lobbying dollars which is the idea of like, you know, we're, we're going to spend all, like a million bucks, you know, hiring this expensive lobbying firm to go to DC and like try to like get, hook us up, right? Which is effectively building like an intangible asset, right? Um, otherwise they wouldn't be investing in this, in this thing in the first place. So that's one idea. And the other thing I'm looking at right now is, um, is, is venture, uh, private company data for like venture backed companies. And, you know, I don't invest in private companies. I'm, you know, focused on liquid the market solely but that doesn't mean that there's not like interesting um, insights that come out of this data right there for every like company in the public markets, there's, you know, 10 companies in the the private markets. And so there's a lot more breadth of the data and especially for the innovation focused factors. One of the really cool things I found is that think about like patents, what is the limitation of patents? There's two things. So one is that patents um, um, that not all companies patent, right? So like sometimes sometimes companies just trade secrets. And the second problem is publication lag. It can take months, um, over, over a year for these things to kind of like become public domain. So one thing that's nice thing about the venture data is we can actually see, you know, similar to what we discussed looking at, you know, the emergence of technologies in the patent data, we can see like when VCs start, you know, putting a lot of money into say VR technology or whatever, like that, you know, is potentially an early, like leading indicator for where innovation is headed. Um, and then therefore can feed into the models we already discussed around IP. So those are, just, those are just like kind of two ideas that we're kind of playing around with right
0: now. Cool. We'll be interested to see uh, what the research shows on, on that stuff. Um, you've been uh, running the ETF for um, a while now. So we want to just ask him sort of closing here before we move on to innovation. Um, what is the biggest lesson for you so far in you know, running your own ETF? I mean, you backed it. You have your own money in there. Um, you're trying to grow it. You are growing it. You're getting the message out. But what it, what's the biggest maybe support Lesson learned over the last year or so with the ETF.
1: Well, let's see. I look, I, I come from the hedge fund world um, and, you know, I, I and also from a big firm, right, where, you know, um, things move at a certain pace. And, you know, I, I always had, had assumed that like running an ETF to be like insanely complex from an operational standpoint that, um, you know, having intraday flows, thousands of investors having to, you know, go through the regulatory uh, hoops to be listed on your stock exchange. That, that would just be tremendously challenging. Um, it turns out that it's actually not like, and again, this is like, you know, I, I use uh, West Grand and Alpha Architect um, to manage a lot of the uh, operations. So credit goes to them. But but I also do think it's a sign of the times that like, you know, over time, like with the rise of cloud computing and like, you know, all this kind of outsourcing technology, like what it's done just in general has been to enable more entrepreneurs. It's been able to e- enable across all industries, not just finance, um, you know, lean organizations to kind of scale really, really well. Um, You know, it used to cost, and then there's also the piece that it used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch an active ETF. And that number has come down significantly. So I just think that the operational ease of doing this is like kind of, kind of incredible. And like, you know, also just like with the ETF structure in general, it's been like surprisingly like, you know, seamless, right? Like I love the fact that it's basically an index and any investor who wants to come in, they're basically investing in an index, right? Where the liquidity is not a function of AUM, but a function of the underlying holdings. Which in my case, Russell 1000 is basically, you know, unlimited, right? So you, we've had big investors come in, and it doesn't, you know, create any issues because of the create redeem, you know, there's an arbitrage, um, you know, ensuring like it's not like it's not like grayscale, right? There's no huge discount, like the discount premium is so small because there's just this arbitrage you can create redeem, and then like the final piece just being like the taxes um, are super interesting with with ETFs, and I think this is another underappreciated aspect of the structure, which is that, um, you know, investors in the ETF, they put their money in today, if we turn over, like, let's say we turn over each year, as we discussed, um, that actually does not generate capital gains, what happens is they, they divest, say, you know, 10 years from now, they basically have compounded their investments tax free for those 10 years. And then they just, you know, pay a bill at the very end, similar to like the way you would do 1031 in real estate, or like um, a Roth IRA. And that is like extremely powerful, but underappreciated, right? Like you have, I think the big thing here is that, um, you know, ETFs have historically been, you know, synonymous with index funds. But the problem is an in index fund, you're basically just like leaving that advantage on the table because they don't really turn over. So the nice thing is that when you kind of marry these two concepts, what you end up with is a strategy where you kind of get the best of both worlds, active management with a tax efficient ETF
0: wrapper. All right, Kai, we like to ask all of our guests uh, a standard closing question when we weren't able to, we didn't have it when you first came on the podcast. So we want to ask you that today. So um, the question is based on your experience in the markets, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Um,
0: well, there's a few things, but
1: I guess what I would say, um, if I could only pick one lesson it would be to keep an open mind. Right. I think there are, it's like, you know, playing poker. There are many ways to play the game, many ways to make money, right? You have folks who are kind of hardcore, died in the wood value. You have people who are trend followers um, and, you know, both schools have succeeded, right? Like it's one of those things where the, the beauty of the markets is that it's an ecosystem and, um, you know, success is, you know, could can be derived in many ways. So I think you want to keep an open mind. You always want to, be respectful of other people's opinions um, and be open to the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe they're right and you're also right. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, you want to be open to and receptive to, you know, challenges to your thesis, right? So, you know, I may have a deeply held view that intangible value tends to be underpriced or at least mispriced in the market, right? One of the things I've been very conscious about doing is, you know, I publish all my papers online. I, you know, go on podcasts like this and like, I'm pretty open with like, what is it my, what is my framework with the idea that like, if I'm like obviously wrong, someone will tell me, right. It's like the idea of a, get, you know, you know, an MVP, where you kind of ship to your customers quickly. So when I have a new paper, I'm just going to throw that idea up online and see what people say, maybe I'll get trolled, um, maybe not, but the, but like the, the goal is to be able to get that feedback from the market, from the marketplace of ideas. Um, and if people say, Hey, have you thought about X? And that's actually a pretty good point. Yeah, I'll, I'll be like, yeah, you know what? I haven't thought about that yet. Let, let me do that and, and kind of come back to you. So I think like constantly questioning your thesis, um, you know, being open minded um, to other ways of, of people doing things. Um, I think that is just like what let, lets you be successful. And like, you know, again, success is always defined over a very long horizon. Any single style can be in and out of favor over a one, three, five year period. So, you know, sticking to your process is important. Um, so you do need conviction. But you also need to be willing to question the assumptions that you're holding. And, you know, that allows you over, say, a hundred year period, you know, if your career is that long, you're like Warren Buffett or something, um, to, to truly evolve your style, you know, as the world around you changes.
0: Good stuff. Thank you very much, Guy. It's been it's been great watching the Sparkline brand grow, um, you know, the ETF grow, um, you getting on these podcasts and, you know, continuing to, to sort of use your research and your writings to sort of tackle these um, very interesting and deep things in investing. So we appreciate the time today. And um, if people want to learn more, we mentioned the website, Sparkline Capital, but if people want to follow you on Twitter or get your mailing list, uh, you know, where, where can they go?
1: Yeah. So if you want to have my mailing list, you can just go to my website and there's a link to sign up. Um, and if you want to follow my personal account on Twitter, it's um, hash, It's uh, C-K-A-I-W-U.
0: Great. Thanks, Guy. Good stuff.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.